0: Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable, board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and today we're welcoming back Tanner Yarrow from Yarrow Studios. Tanner has just recently surprised the industry with another innovation that is sure to change the way that people use dice for years to come. Tanner, welcome back to The Binge. How you doing?
1: Good. It's good to be back.
0: It's good to have you back, man. So for people that uh, want to get kind of the backstory, because uh, we've talked about some of your other innovations in this industry in episodes 37 and 51, check those out, uh, where we had Tanner on the podcast. Um, you're kind of actually there near the beginning of this, uh, this whole journey, even on my end, which is kind of cool. Episode 37 was uh, only a few months into the podcast, so it's kind of cool now that we've crossed over 200 episodes to have you come back and, uh, and talk about how you've grown as a company as well. Before we kind of get into this, this new product, this, uh, this flip die, I was wondering if you can give our audience just a quick overview of uh, Yaro studios and kind of what you guys are all about.
1: Yeah. So Yaro studios is my little think tank convention house and I am just. I want to just keep making cool stuff in the RPG and board game space. I all my ideas just come from things that I want, and and I'm always surprised to find out that they don't exist, and then we do it. And yeah, that's. I don't. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of it.
0: Now you're not a small company, obviously. Uh, I think you're in the millions of dollars now across your various campaigns. Everything from your your map book, you're one of the first people to do that to have the lay flat uh, map books uh, for D and D, your Infinity Roll, which is kind of rolls on forever, and you have this massive, massive ongoing kind of um, revealing uh, dungeon. Um, one of the other things we talked about on the podcast was even in the toy industry, right? Like so, even beyond you know kind of board games and in, in the gaming industry, you've got involved with toys, right? Like I think last time we're talking, you had this utility patent on like this three-dimensional kind of light bright type product or something like yeah. this
1: yeah yeah Globots.
0: the Glowbots.
1: yeah that's one that we'll hopefully see soon um there's obviously you know i try to be quick with uh what works and what doesn't work and not spend time on things that don't work and yeah. let the audience kind of dictate but uh yeah our team our team is not big it's it's still just you know, two people that are full-time me yeah. and uh, my finance and my business manager kind of dude Chandler, and then everybody else is, is contracted. And, awesome. and yeah.
0: Is one of the things that uh, often I'll, I'll talk to colleagues or, you know, people in the industry that are saying, you know, we talk about the videos, right? The big thing is videos with, with Kickstarter campaigns. And I always cite you as an example of how, yes, videos are nice and you have to have a video, but you don't necessarily have to spend a boatload of money on a video. And I think if you go back to your campaign and this one too, I think has got more animation in it than you typically have, but still, um, you know, a lot of this is, you know, your camera, you talking to camera, you doing something kind of interesting, something kind of fun in front of the camera to kind of engage the audience and, and demonstrate the product. But you're not going like, crazy with the 3d animation and all the kind of animated like in this one obviously because you have all these renders of these coins yeah uh you know clearly you have some some assets to use there but it's still not the heart of the story of that video the heart of the story of the video is actually you right around a table um yeah is this a philosophy you, you hope to kind of stick to in years to come or because it's i mean clearly it's working right <laughs> like
1: yeah yeah i'll speak to that a little bit i was looking through your past videos and the videos that get the most views were about saving money on kickstarter and Mm. i feel like that is my probably my number one philosophy i think that to an extent the more that you spend obviously if you do it right the the better it is in the long run but i would say about 90 percent of my video uh fees and cost was the 3d animations yeah and I think that they turned out absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And, I, and I think that they, they helped a lot. That first animation of the coin spinning and opening up cost about $1,000. Wow. And that was the one that I put on TikTok and it hit 1.5 million views on TikTok, pure organic.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And so wow. when
1: that one started going viral, um, I created a landing page and collected emails, and that one TikTok video got us 6,000 emails and phone numbers to start this campaign off. And that cost me, you know, $1,000 for the video. But if you look at my TikTok, the other 90% of my videos, which are another million views, were me with my prototype that cost, you know, 600 bucks. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so, and then everything else in my video, there's, I, I laugh and I, every time I show somebody the video, there's a scene where I'm talking about how I've made this my career and I love it. And I'm working on the computer and I'm actually holding my iPhone with my other hand. And I, I actually upgraded to the, the three camera one. Cause it gives <laughs> you, this is the best purchase for creators. I literally yeah, yeah. shot my entire Kickstarter video on an iPhone.
0: Is it like method. a 13 or 14? It's probably the 13, I guess. Yeah.
1: This is the 13. Yeah. And I just I don't have a case. I just dropped it and cracked the back.
0: But it goes, it goes to show that there's tools that most people have already that can allow them to create content as long as you're getting creative on how you approach it, right? Like, I mean, I'd be remiss to say, and I'm gonna put this in Canadian dollars because it, it always sounds bigger, and it's the only way I can see it. Yeah. But I mean, you've hit like one, almost $1. $1.5 million Canadian dollars on this campaign. Right. And, and you're just starting, right. You still have 22 days to go. Um, You know, if someone's that's yeah, we, doing
1: like, we did it in under a week. So this morning at 8am was the, the seven day period and we hit it yesterday right. around four o'clock. So.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, but for the, for like that kind of level of funding, you know, when I look at other campaigns out there that are in that, in that kind of vein, they're spending like 10 grand on, on a video, right. For their, to introduce their, you know, their, their, their campaign. And the point I was trying to make is that you don't have to spend gobs and gobs of money on your Kickstarter campaign. And quite frankly, I think if you had to choose between spending your money on, you know, a, a slick video or putting that money into actually growing your audience, Your your ads and your audience is probably the better spend in that regard, I would say, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I was just thinking about this. Somebody found an old Reddit AMA that I did after my first Kickstarter. Yeah. I just was loving like the the vibe of feeling like I was the the guy. (laughs) And and he reached out to just ask some follow-up questions on what I've learned over the past couple of years. And I was able to think more about it lately. And he asked me, you know, is it more is it better to put your money into ad spend? or the Kickstarter campaign video and the page. And the more I thought about it the more I just thought, you know, it's it really is all about your product. So it's mm-hmm. neither of those things. And and it product first and then there's there's tons of philosophy we can get into, but um if your product fits the Kickstarter ecosystem and there's some rules that I have created for myself, um then, then you focus then on marketing and building your audience, and last I would say is is your campaign. But they're all important.
0: So, what are one of the rules that you've created for yourself, or what are a couple of them?
1: So, my first rule when I'm like meeting people that want to do kickstarters are just no toys for kids. Mm. That and, and that just comes from experience. It sounds very like a really strange rule, but there's a yeah. ton of people that have this idea for this kids product. Yeah and mothers and grandmothers people that are buying toys for children aren't on kickstarter yeah and so what ends up happening is you spend you know way too much on the education part of marketing where you're teaching people you know first-time kickstarter users yeah mothers i'm just speaking from numbers and demographics here and it just and i feel like it's an interesting one because um it's uh there's a lot of people that want to sell kids toys on Kickstarter. And it just, I've tried it. It doesn't work.
0: Kids toys, kids games. And, yeah.
1: And then I would go to like, I would take it a step further and and go like, um, obviously it's easier to say what is the fit. And the fit is, is products that are made for young men between the ages of 18 and 35. Mm-hmm. And they are nerd geek trend culture. And so it's, it's, Everyday carry, consumer electronics, board games, role-playing games. If you fit there, you can make money on Kickstarter. Otherwise, I think it's just a complete uphill battle.
0: Yeah. In which case... So there's, I have people... There's,
1: yeah. I had like a all- dentist come to me with like a tooth extraction tool, and he wanted to kickstart it. I'm like, look, this is just not the market. You're not selling it to the people that would buy it.
0: It's a good point, you know, because I think you're right, and it doesn't mean that the kids' games or, or kids' toys aren't viable products. It's just there's other avenues to get those to market or to, um, you know, to reach your target or the people who are actually going to buy it without, you know, burning a lot of cash in in an ecosystem where that's maybe not going to uh, do as well, right?
1: Yeah, and I see a lot of people think that Kickstarter is just a way that they can maybe even just pay for tooling, like, hey, if I make. 50 grand, I'll pay for tooling. And it's like, Kickstarter works like Amazon, you can't just list something and watch it explode. Yeah. to make 50 grand on a product that doesn't fit the ecosystem, you're going to spend 50 grand. So yeah, and I've done that. I've done that three times. So I, I'm not just speaking out of my butt, I'm speaking <laughs> from solid experience that that if it doesn't fit, it's not worth your time.
0: That's awesome. Let me. I want to ask you about this flip die. I mean, this is probably one of the coolest things I've seen in in, in quite some time uh, in this gaming industry, and it truly is an innovation. Um, can you explain to people um, kind of what is flip die and 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 where did this idea come from? Like, how did this kind of I mean, it seems so obvious now when you see it, but this didn't exist, yeah. you know, like uh, two years ago, yeah. right? So, how did you come up with this idea? What was the inspiration? Yeah,
1: so my first three campaigns that really did well were, were Dungeons & Dragons accessories, their battle maps. And one thing that I kept seeing was dungeon masters were buying them. And that was, that was it. I mean, people were buying it for their dungeon master, but it was a tool for dungeon masters. Mm. And then um, I always had in the back of my head that, you know, most D&D parties are between four and eight players. And I'm literally building products that only sell to one in that group. And so I always wanted a product that could sell to everybody at the table. So that was in the back of my head. And then when COVID hit and everybody moved online, I had this like come to Jesus moment where I was like, I can't build a business that depends on somebody else's IP, meaning I don't want a product that is dependent on the success or failure of Hasbro Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons. And luckily we're in a renaissance for Dungeons and Dragons, but I don't want to build a company that's dependent on somebody else's IP. And so you could argue that the dice fit that as well, but I could also argue that dice have been around for longer than D&D. You can use the flip die in any games, you know, mm-hmm. we play Monopoly with my 2d6 um (laughs) flip die lord of the rings version of monopoly and so it kind of spanned that gap of like it was still an accessory so it still appealed to my audiences that i built and it wasn't um dependent on or just just built for a dungeon master and it doesn't have it is for dnd but it doesn't have to be just for dnd and we get people on the kickstarter page every day that are like I don't play D and D, but I'll use these in Warhammer. I'll use these Mm. just to flip with my pocket. And, and the, the world record dice buyer just needed to have them. So, so, and then when I was thinking through those two things in the back of my head, I saw dice projects doing really well on Kickstarter. There was the wizard dice was kind of the first one that set the ball rolling and it was just unique molds for the dice. And then Wormwood and Dispel did a really big one with hard edge dice. And I just sat there and thought, how do I randomly generate numbers in a different way? And and there's some ideas that I have in my head that are literally the the most convoluted worst way of generating random numbers one through 20 and and some that I think are pretty cool and we'll see them after the dice coin potentially.
0: Hmm. So this coin essentially has like a little ball bearing on the inside that when you flip this coin, the ball bearing kind of moves around and then it'll, when the dice, when the die or the the coin lands, the ball bearing will basically settle in one of the holes and reveal itself that has a number associated with it. Essentially is how you get your random um, numbers, I guess, when you flip it, right?
1: Yeah. Like a, like a roulette wheel. And then, um, There's a lot of math that went into the the numbers and the angles and slopes inside to make sure that it's fully random. And then I would say another bit of advice for Kickstarters to have this success. This didn't happen overnight. And I give full credit to Iran, who, you know, from green inbox, Mm -hmm. but he joined the project pretty early and we started showing the, the coin to our community and, you know, we would be hit with all these questions and concerns, like, this looks dumb, how do I, the numbers are too small. I can barely see the ball. And where before I would get in there and argue with these people, like, no, trust me, I have one, it works. (laughs) Iran was like, look, let's just take all this feedback and keep tweaking the product until they don't ask more questions. And so we spent maybe 100 hours over the course of a month, asking people to rip it apart. But then anytime they did, I would get online with the factory and fix those issues. And what you see is a freaking million dollar one week campaign. And if you read through the comments, there's no more questions. Everybody's just excited. And I've never run a campaign like that because before I learned this, I would just launch it and argue with people in the comments and try to convince (laughs) them otherwise. But how much easier it's been taking that feedback and you know with a board game hey this rule doesn't make sense this sucks or i don't like the art then you fix it yeah because you 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 it's it's if you launch with it bad it's bad forever but if you fix it then it's then it's good whatever time and money that takes so
0: well one could say that that's what kicks are supposed to do right i mean that's the purpose is not to say, here's a finished game that I'm going to start shipping next week. It was to get people's feedback and people feel like they're part of the journey and they can give input and, you know, hopefully you can then tweak, you know, that final product that is delivered to the backers maybe a year later or so forth. Um, True.
1: But I would add that, that, that's not a way to make money on Kickstarter. That's a good way to mm-hmm. launch a product on Kickstarter. But if you sure. spend the time to do that dev before, then you can make money on Kickstarter and, get those final tweaks and still have them be a part of the process. Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of comments on the Kickstarter now where people are like, hey, this is awesome that you hit a million, but this sucks that you hit a million because now we're going to have scope creep. And mm. I'll just say it like I was 100% expecting to hit a million, maybe not in a week, but, but I've had manufacturing lined up to do 500,000 coins for the past three months. And so nothing has surprised us, Um, but you can't just say that, right? People see and they're like, oh, you hit your $15,000 goal, but did way more. And I'm like, if we did $15,000, I would be completely disappointed in myself. Yeah. Even though that's the goal that I set on Kickstarter. But our internal goal was, our internal goal is 2 million. Mm. And we have everything to get to that point. And if we were trying to solve the problems during the Kickstarter, you don't get anywhere near there.
0: Yeah, that's fair. How did you figure out the inside mechanics? You, you know, you're saying that, you know, you you call a factory, right? And talk to the factory, hey, make this change, make that change. But that initial design, how did you collaborate with somebody? Did you get engineers to help you? Or how did you get to that initial internal design that worked out the randomness of this ball to make sure that, you know, it wasn't just going to stick in one spot with the centrifugal force as you kind of flipped it? Like, how did you work yeah. that out?
1: Yeah, so we did the first round of samples we paid for them to be um, die cast with a soft mold so you have hard molds and soft molds and soft molds are probably 3d printed and they're yeah. good for one or two casts and then they and then they just don't work anymore but the difference is 100 bucks for a soft mold to make two coins versus 5 grand per mold in in stainless steel to make you know yeah. hundreds of thousands of coins And so we made a soft mold for the D6 was the first one that we made in a D12. And we got those samples, we flipped them, you know, a 1000 times I had them for six months took them to shows. Um, We met with a, a few mathematicians, I put it on Reddit. Again, I shared it with the community. And I was like, I don't know how to do these numbers. I'm not a mathematician. How would you do this? And I had a a doctorate in math mathematics from Harvard who has requested to remain anonymous um, work with me that I met through Reddit on structuring the numbers so that every three grouping is the same uh, standard deviation. Mm. And then, and then how those numbers work on the top and bottom, we drew a lot from roulette wheels and, and dart boards that have a very strategic placing of the numbers to get randomness. And then we did, four rounds of soft molds and some we even did some like uh uh he he ran some statistical analysis using a a mild like game engine mm. to like use our 3d models and test flip um until we landed on you know we flipped our d20 a thousand times we flipped the other coins thousands of times but tracked the d20 and, and our graph is on the page and
0: yeah you just know, it's just it. it's cool
1: yeah we were able to uh to get the and that was another thing that was super important for people it was making sure that it was random and rather than arguing with them we had to get to that point and and prove it not only to them but to ourselves and and do lots of iterations until everybody was satisfied
0: how do you are these like uh soldered together like you're like literally hammering it like you're smacking with a hammer on your page. So clearly it's durable, but how do you keep it together? Like, how's this, this coin kind of fused?
1: Yeah, it's called brazed, and the zinc alloy, they put in a, a another material and hit it with a electricity that any, mm. any, it's the same way they do jewelry. So anywhere where the two halves are contacting or are close to contacting, it fuses.
0: Like a solder. Almost. And
1: so there's mm. not, I know in the image, in the image we have, I'll just show this if I can, if it will focus. I have a piece of paper here. Let's see. Is that is that focusing? Yeah, I can see it. So there's these little nubs here that are just for the samples and to line it up, but the final one is is flat so that the the areas of contact are. 100% where the two coins touch and then it fuses so it literally becomes one piece of metal which is why we could hit it with a hammer and it doesn't Yeah. I mean you you smash the coin before you separate the two halves.
0: That's amazing. Could there be a plastic version of this like would a plastic version ever work or no? We looked at that.
1: The issue is in the interior because the current interior is machine tooled yeah um and that gives us like microns of of precision like yeah precision versus plastic and if you get you know some it it could we haven't i haven't looked at doing that i wanted metal because they're metal coins and and but but i think you could the way i've seen some Sharp edge resin, resin dice that are really good. Um, but yeah, maybe version two. A lot of people were suggesting, you know, a, a clear coin to make it even easier to see where the ball goes. And I think that could be really cool.
0: Well, I was even thinking like licensing, right? So, I mean, it, this is a super cool idea, right? And I can see in an industry of uh, indie developers, uh, board game developers who have games coming down the pipe you know, maybe there's a licensing deal you can do with like a lower cost version that they can actually integrate, you know, flip die, uh, you know, TM into their, into their game. Right. And you know, whatever the design is matches the theme of their, of their game or so forth. But I mean, it could be a way to kind of make flip die almost become ubiquitous, right?
1: No, it would be really cool. I mean, obviously the dream would be to like, do Lord of the Rings flip die as like a yarrow studios product here's yeah. a seven die set with lord of the rings on it or official dungeons and dragons but then there's totally the other side of like hey the new version of gloomhaven has two flip die in it that are gloomhaven flip die yeah or or yeah 100 percent. and we we have the patent um a utility patent on on the coins and so we we definitely could look at that for oh, sure that's
0: awesome one thing i've seen like when you you know different people commenting online um is around uh, ai art and the emergence of using artificial intelligence like with mid journey and some of these other um uh software programs to create art is this something you i think you've been dabbling in as well ai art
1: yeah totally at first um I was I totally got sucked in and and generated like 10,000 images in the first couple of days that it was available.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and went through all the processes of hey, let's fill the Kickstarter with art from this. And then um it slowly started to come out that and totally understandable that this was not a good thing right it was using art from other creators Mm. as its database so it was taking you know artists and their art database and then it was creating images from there and it kind of created this divide of like pissing off a lot of artists Mm. rightfully so it's using their art without their permission but it was kind of this up in the air kind of like gray area Is it okay and so i decided to just push away from that because i love our artists we we work with a lot of artists and i didn't want to come out and be like look i hit a million bucks and i didn't pay any artists i used ai now that said i used it today and i use it regularly to to kind of create concept art for my artists yeah so i'll give the real use case our our wooden chest that we're selling as an add-on we're designing that And there's a lock on the front of the chest that I want. And I wanted it to look like carved jade. Like we have a lot of that imagery on our Kickstarter page. So I wanted this carved jade padlock. Couldn't find anything on Google Images. And then I was like, oh, duh. And in two seconds, I had a carved jade padlock to show my artist to be like, let's design something like this.
0: It's uh, so, is it like the green boxy you on your page? Is that kind of the, what you're talking about?
1: So, that is that is that was an artist that we hired, but I, I liked the feeling of it. Yeah. And I just so I just barely sent it to you on, on Facebook Messenger. I don't know if you can pull it up, but this took me 10 seconds to generate. And it's a photo from mid journey of a carved stone jade lock that um, now my artist can work from to potentially do something with the chest so for conceptualizing quickly it's awesome
0: yeah so it's basically that guy right there
1: it looks like a photograph and it generated yeah. it in 30 Second. seconds and i was trying to google image to be like look make something like this yeah but i not find anything because i don't carve jade padlocks it just didn't come up with anything that i thought was cool but i was able to knock this out and like 30 seconds i
0: guess it's the difference of using something as a tool versus kind of the end product right and is that that's kind of where the ethical i guess dilemma is i mean i I use it myself when i was and i used like the one of the earlier ones wombo which isn't super fantastic but our game we're working on right now cities of venus i need to have a you know conceptual image of a floating mm. city with very specifically with pink clouds around it, you know, floating in the air with, you know, kind of like a nice sky above it and going through different iterations, I was able to find an image. that was pretty close approximation to what I was looking for. Then I hired an artist and said, this is an, I want you to do your style, but this gives you an idea of what I'm looking for. And then they went and they, you know, and they did their own version of, of that. So um, I can see it as definitely a tool for people prototyping for sure. If you need stand in artwork uh, for your game, as you're kind of, you know, it's always better to have something that looks visually nice when you're playtesting and so forth um, and kind of working out the kinks and something like that. It's just kind of, I guess, that next step where people make the decision to say, no, no, my finished product is going to use the AI art. And again, I'm kind of torn on this one because I, you know, I look at this industry and, you know, there's, there's massive campaigns like you've had and congratulations. Now you have, you know, there's a war chest you can dip into, right. For future innovation you're working on and so forth. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that are doing this as a hobby and, you know, they're doing it at nighttime or on weekends and they have a regular nine to five job. They don't have the resources to go necessarily hire an artist to create, you know, 20, 30 pieces of art. In those cases, those campaigns, you know, may or may not fund well, but at least it gives them something that they can start with that and they can afford, right? So on that perspective, I look at it and say, you know what, I think it's a good thing where it's allowing more budding game developers to get into the industry where maybe the last barrier to entry for them was the ability to afford kind of some of this upfront artwork and things like that.
1: Yeah. I, I'd have to agree with you there. I think that it's a, again, it's even a gray area on that. I think that smaller campaigns and Mm -hmm. smaller creators can 100% use it and use it well like, um, I'll send you another image. I got, I got really good with it. And I was generating <laughs> some, uh, like, like unreal. I was generating some, uh, pirates and I was like, you could just literally drop these into a pirate campaign. It, it is insane. Oh, like I'll the stuff I've seen,
0: later. uh, through mid journey and, and we can always tag it on the, uh, if people would join our, um, board game binge, uh, Facebook group, we'll obviously put the uh, playback of the video there. If people are listening maybe we'll link in some of the uh, the images in there but the photorealism is insane um like I've seen some pictures where it literally looks like a photograph of an actual person and and it's it it's AI it's generated. better too yeah
1: yeah so check check this out let me drop this one would you here. say which
0: is your favorite one I think mid-journey for me is probably the one that seems to be um kind of ahead of its time oh yeah that's cool
1: So with zero retouching, if you were making a pirate card game, there's your pirate captain, drop that in. What I was getting at was if you're a small creator, this is an amazing tool totally. And I I would even put this art on the finished product. But obviously if your campaign then gets to a point where you can afford to bring in an artist and a graphic designer, you should. Now if Wizards of the Coast released a Dungeons and Dragons book or module and and the art inside was mid-journey you know that they would get absolutely crucified yeah right and so i think that it's just like i think everybody knows the the i think there's this mutual understanding and respect like i'll show you another image this is currently the the so all the all the flip dice come with a mouse pad kind yeah. of neoprene mat to protect your tables and uh it's totally just included and I, I know we expected it to blow up i didn't have cash to on hand to pay for an artist to design the neoprene mat but the mat is actually currently mid-journey art interesting um, and i'll i'll throw that to you but i think i have that on the actual the point.
0: page too right Oh yeah. It's on there too. Yeah. So I'm going to show off for people yeah. watching on the replay and I'll try to use some descriptive words to describe it. So he's basically got this illustrated map of this, I guess this world What's the name you're giving this world. I don't know yet. <laughs>
1: like the, there was something the, like seven, seven realms, realms or something like that. I was reading. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And, uh, which is cool. And then a part of that was a five E, uh, it was one of the stretch goals too, right? Like you're going to throw in a, a free, uh, uh,
1: yeah, we're gonna write it. A, it's yeah. gonna be awesome. That's a maybe for a, another discussion for another time. But we're we're basically building out National Treasure, the plot of National Treasure as a Dungeons and Dragons adventure. So I I I searched everywhere, and there's no good heist campaigns. And so this is a full heist campaign where you're working against a very wealthy benefactor who's trying there's to it. unite the seven pieces of fate, and you're trying to do the same. Anyways, this this map that we created was created in mid journey and it's, it's really cool. But now that we have cash, we'll, I'll get an artist to, to do it. So it's an actual piece of coherent art on the, on the map, but it would have totally worked if, if we didn't have the success that we did.
0: I think that's fair. I think people, um, and for those who wonder like mid, just Google mid journey, if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, obviously people, I think know what we're talking about with AI art, but if you're looking for an AI art program, uh mid is a good one. And I think they do it through the Discord server. And um I think it even the you get like a free, is it 10 images you get free or twenty? And then after that it's like a is a subscription model, but it's like fifteen dollars a month. Like it is it is nothing, right? When you compare it to actually having yeah, to go and, yeah. and commission art, right?
1: I mean, I I have a folder of of fifty plus no, sorry, five hundred plus D and D items that I made that look you would never, like, you can get so good with mid-journey that you can't, dis- you can't tell that it's mid-journey.
0: Like, and is that just a number of prompts or, or how do you do that? Like, is it number of prompts or? I, I, yeah, it's just, and that's,
1: that's, that's the other side of the ethical discussion where is it just a tool? Because when Photoshop came out, you know, there were people that, that edited ph- photography by hand who were worried about, it. you know, taking their job. And it became a tool that people can use. And so being good at knowing how to manipulate mid journey, some of these images took me, you know, hundreds of, of back and forth with the bot until I trained it to, to spit out what I needed it to spit out. And so I'll, I'll link you some of these, but you basically give it a prompt. It gives you four images and then you can train the prompt to say that's close, that's not close. Do this yeah. one, do that. But you look at these there. I wanted it to be in the D&D art style, which is watercolor. Yeah. And do Dungeons and Dragons magic items and they look like they look, you would never tell that that, that was mid, what I just said you was mid-journey. It's like this green slime cloak.
0: And then how do you get consistent, like uh, cohesiveness in the art, right? So if someone is going to say take mid journey and they want to you know, do the art for their, their game uh, using that as a way to, to, to save some funds and, and get some pretty killer art in their game. One of the challenges is when you start cobbling together different pieces that it doesn't necessarily look cohesive, right? It looks like it's kind of like when you use, um, you know, shutterstock or, or stock photography or, mm-hmm. or images, mm-hmm. you know, taking that path, which is what I've done in the past you know, your prototypes, they don't look super cohesive because you're pulling in different styles of images created by different people to try to, you know, to create your finished product. With mid-journey, are you able to train this bot to crank out a consistent kind of look and feel to each image coming as those images change? Or do you have to keep kind of reiterating until you get another image that's in the the kind of the same vein?
1: Yeah, and that's where you get into the ethical dilemma because you 100% can... But the way that you do it is by telling it to create art like Frank Miller, for example. Mm. So if you add by Frank Miller at the end of your mid-journey prompt, all the art that it kicks out is going to be the same exact art style and feel feel very cohesive. I mean, Mm. if you look at the four images that I just sent you. You couldn't have a different smattering of, of Dungeons and Dragons items, yet they all look like they were done by the same artist because I used the same finishing prompts. So one is a, axe, a healing potion axe was kind of the prompt that I typed in. And then I used in the d d art style watercolor sketch. And when I put that at the end of every single one in the d d art style watercolor sketch and sometimes attaching even an artist to it, you can get. Super cohesive. I mean, you could drop these into a game right now and nobody would think twice.
0: Yeah. And then when you think of the ethical piece of that, okay. So in you know, in your example, in the style of like Frank Miller, um, but you could do the same thing with an artist, right? If you hire like a like an up-and-coming artist and you say, Look, I'm looking to create a thematic kind of uh you know noir type thematic game in the style kind of like frank can you can you kind of do me a style kind of along those those lines that artist is as inspiration as and as a kind of a template as well right so it's kind of a fine fine line isn't it
1: you're making the same exact argument that the mid-journey devs make on their on their um podcast or their their office hours that they do i would tune Mm -hmm. in every wednesday and there was always this ethical discussion because how the bot works is they'll feed it 8,000 images by Frank Miller. And then when – and they say the – the thing that they say is that it works just like your eyes work. The technology is fantastic. But I think that's a, a get-out-of-jail-free card because mm. the argument that they're making is the same one that you made. You could hire an artist to say, look at all these Frank Miller and then recreate it. And they're getting a computer to look at all of these and recreate it. The issue Mm. is, is that with a human's eyes, that's just how they work, right? You take in the world around you and you create something new, but the computer is taking this art that Frank Miller didn't give them permission to use, but does he need to if human beings can do the same with their eyes? And so it's the argument that they make And it really is just fascinating. And people that try to rip apart these AI tools, they say, oh, well, the copyright office has already deemed it uncopyrightable. And you'll see that over and over again, but Mm. it's not true. There was one guy that tried to copyright a piece of art that his AI tool created, but his AI tool had zero um, um, user interface. To get to that point and that was the reason why they denied him the copyright but when you get into mid journey there's there's 500 different um tools text-based tools where you're messing with aspect ratio and you're weighting the prompts differently and and you know there's 500 different things that you can type to get a prompt i mean some people's prompts to generate art are five to ten paragraphs long oh, and wow. you could argue that that is their art style and then they're iterating with the computer 500 times to get to this final piece and product and now that blows the whole oh this is uncopyrightable out of the water because there's tons of user, user interface and you can sync 500 hours and at that point is it any different than creating something in illustrator there's lots of tools in illustrator that make the artist job easier so it's just a
0: fascinating ethical. yeah you can almost do an entire episode just on ai My like, gosh i mean um, did
1: you see facebook release their video ai did you see that no i didn't oh this is the this is the coolest one yet and i'm i'm on the I, i'm waiting anxiously for the waitlist but they type in unicorns running on a beach and it generates a video of unicorns running on a beach and a couple walking down a a cyberpunk street while it's raining holding hands and it generates a video of that. And it looks, come on, you look close and it's very uncanny. No, you, you need to look it up. If I share my screen, would it show it?
0: It won't. But what we're going to do is we're going to, let's save that for the next episode. Cause uh, I, again, I, I get excited, but that's like, that's like another hour. What is next for you? Like, so for, for Yaro studios, you have something coming after flip dice. Of course you got something coming after flip dice. Can you talk about it or what what's kind of next for you?
1: Yeah, totally. One of the fun ones that I was messing around with uh, after Flip Die was a, I found it at a yard sale. It's like a Sari popper that rolls the dice inside. And while I was working on Flip Die, I found a, a, it's a kid's tic-tac-toe game that had three rows of poppers. And on your turn, you pop one and it's red or blue with the the X or the O. And I made a TikTok that I was like, I found this at a yard sale. Let's put D&D dice in it. And I oh, went to bed cool. and I woke up and it was at 3 million views. And so we are working with the factory on how to make that an actual product. Cause there was a lot of comments on accessibility, but it's essentially a seven yeah. die set in a popper. And so that's one that we'll probably see. And then obviously I want to make more flip die sets. I want to, I want, I really want to do a licensed one. So yeah. we're going to start talking to Netflix and and HBO and, Amazon and see if we can get one of their cool licenses and say, look at the success of this campaign. Can we do a Brandon Sanderson of of uh, Yeah. Something.
0: <laughs> House of dragon. Makes sense. Well, Tanner. Oh my gosh, man. I get excited every time I see these projects you're working on. Uh, and I can't wait to see where you land. I'm sure you're going to hit 2 million easily on this campaign. Um, I wish you all the best. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for people want to check it out. Uh, if they go on uh, Kickstarter and just type in flip die, you will find it there. And uh, man, we'll get you back for uh, for episode, uh, the fourth round of episode. How's that sound?
1: Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, if we want to just talk AI, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I can check how many images I've generated with the bot in two seconds. Let's <laughs> see, you go like this and you go slash info. I'm sure. And it is... So far, I've generated 4,525 images and I have spent 50 hours on the bot.
0: Not bad. So for people listening, if you want to get to this kind of quality of imagery, (laughs) there's some time investment, but uh, the good news is it's not necessarily a financial investment too heavily to to try uh, MidJourney. So uh, maybe I'll put a link to MidJourney in the show notes as well if people want to check that out. Anyway, we'll get you back for the next episode. Tanner, all the best and congrats on this campaign. Pleasure. yeah of course cheers this has been an episode of the board game binge podcast hosted by james staley produced by james staley and mike bruner with original music by nick smith if you'd like to watch these interviews live simply subscribe to our youtube channel board game binge and you'll get access to live interviews giveaways and interesting board game content from across the industry i can't wait for you to join us See you next time.